you have your Bibles, you can open to Luke 22, which is where we'll spend our time this morning. I was thinking about our subject matter this morning, which is pride. And I thought about a story I heard Arnold Palmer tell one time about the 1961 Masters. He was on the famous 18th hole of the Masters, and he had a one-stroke lead coming into the 18th hole. And he said that he is heading to the tee box to drive, knowing I got, got to get through this one hole and I am the Masters champion. They're going to fit me for that green jacket one more time here. And um, as he's walking up, he saw a friend of his who stuck his hand out and said, Arnie, congratulations. And he said he took his hand, he shook it, and as soon as he shook his hand in his head, he went, why am I shaking his hand? I haven't won anything. I, I only have a one-stroke lead. What am I doing? And he said as soon as he shook his hand, he felt all of his concentration go just gone. And so he gets up to the tee box, terrible drive, then he hits it into a bunker, and then the bunker shot goes past the green, rolls down the hill a little, and by the time all is said and done, he's got a 15-foot putt for bogey just to force a playoff, and he misses it, and he loses the Masters. And he said that he played golf another 30 years competitively, and he never again made the mistake. That he didn't count the victory until it was done. And in the end, Arnold Palmer gives us a lesson on self-congratulatory pride. Spiritually, self-congratulating pride will lead you into dangerous waters. It will leave you on shaky ground. It's a disposition that we have to combat and we have to fight. We cannot allow ourselves to slink into a place of self-congratulatory pride or we will be on spiritually thin ice. And we see pride on display in this passage this morning, but we also see what happens when a prideful man is restored by a gracious God. As we read, you'll remember that Judas has betrayed Jesus. The Messiah has been arrested now by a mob of religious elite and Roman soldiers. We have seen Jesus taken into custody, and Peter is going to be following at a distance. And remember that Jesus has predicted that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows and the morning of Passover Friday comes. So I'll read for us Luke 22, starting in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Father, I am a sinner just like all the people sitting in this room right now, Lord, and what that means is that we all need the same thing, and that is you. We need the Holy One, the Righteous One, to speak and to show us what you now require of us as your people. And so I pray that you would, and I pray, God, your word would be clear, that we would understand it, 
and that real life change would come about because of your word, Lord. And so we ask for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this passage begins in verse 54 with the mob seizing Christ and leading him away. They have arrested him. Some of them would have been longing to do this for years, maybe, certainly months. It's the hour of darkness. Darkness has filled Judas's heart. Darkness has settled on the religious leadership of Israel. The pagan government of Rome has brought their own helping of darkness to the table. And Satan is in the midst of it, probably believing that he is finally going to win his war against the true Lord of the universe. We are told by Luke that they take him to the high priest's house and Peter is following at a distance. John gives us some more details. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. Luke says that they went to the high priest and, and went to the high priest's house in verse 54. But John tells us they went to Annas, who's not actually the high priest. He is instead the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest. And so the deal is, is that the Romans stripped Annas of his position in AD 15, and his son-in-law Caiaphas is the high priest now. So why does Luke say they're the the house of the high priest? Is this a discrepancy in the Bible? Is this a contradiction? Well, uh, of course it's not. Um, if if George W. Bush walked in here today, we'd all be very excited, okay? We'd be like, okay, George W. Bush is here, right? And I wouldn't walk up to him and say, George, put it there, you know? Even though he is no longer the president, I would walk up to him and I would say, Mr. President, it's an honor for us to have you here at Seaford Baptist Church today, and I would want to shake his hand. So even though he's no longer in office, I'd still call him Mr. President, right? Annas is no longer in office. Caiaphas is in office, but they're still going to call him the high priest. And we learn that from, from John that an unnamed disciple goes with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, and that's probably John himself, because that's how he talks about himself in his gospel. He likes to remain anonymous. And so John is going in. His family must have had some connections uh, to where he had a good reputation with Annas and Caiaphas' family. But Peter stays at a distance, and he waits by the door of the courtyard. He settles in for the night. There's people there. There are people interested in this situation. You would imagine that the mob who came to arrest Jesus, which we learned that there were probably a few hundred soldiers there for that arrest, they're all lingering around. They're waiting to see what the outcome is going to be. Now, I think that Peter, he's about to take a beating here, so let's commend them while we can. We couldn't do it last week. He tried to separate somebody's head from their body. We could not commend that. But this we can commend. Mark tells us in Mark 14, 50, that they all left him and fled. So pretty much all the disciples have run away at this point. But Peter hasn't gone far. He, he's following at a distance, right? Like, like Jack Reacher or, or whatever your famous, you know, whatever spy you like the most, Sherlock Holmes, whatever, okay? Right? He's following at a distance. He's like, I'm, I'm not running away here. I'm, I'm going to see what's going to happen. And, and, and so he's keeping a safe distance, but he is following, which tells us that Peter is willing to suffer. 
He, he knows that if, if he is near Jesus and Jesus has just been arrested and he's identified with Jesus, that could uh, certainly bring danger into his life. So even this level of courage here is commendable. I don't know if I'm following at a distance. Maybe I'd be one of the ones who ran away. It's unrefined courage. It's courage that needs to be sanctified, which we'll see here, but it's still commendable. And yet, with that said, we have to remind ourselves of Jesus' prediction about Peter in the upper room. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, uh, until you deny three times that you know me. This prediction is as fixed as Jesus's words about him being betrayed. It is as fixed as his words about him being delivered into the hands of godless men who would cause him to suffer and then be crucified. It's going to happen. And we see it play out in verses 56 through 60. There are three denials from Peter throughout the night, just as Jesus predicted. First of all, there is the denial of the servant girl's accusation. It, it almost seems pitiful from Peter. You're like, really? You, you can't even own up to it with the harmless servant girl? But in reality, the servant girl is probably more dangerous to Peter than we think, because she is likely a servant of Annas' household. And if Peter says, yeah, I'm with them. What are you going to do about it, servant girl? Well, she very well might get up and go inside and tell her master, and Peter could be standing trial next to his Lord in no time. And so Peter crumbles in the face of such a prospect, and he says, woman, I do not know him. The second denial comes about a little later when someone else recognizes him as a disciple and says, you also are one of them. Peter says, man, I'm not. And then an hour later, we get the third denial when someone in the courtyard picks up on Peter's accent and says, hey, you're from Galilee. Certainly this man also was with him. And for a third time, Peter denies and he says, man, I do not know what you were talking about. All three denials are direct. He is accused and he responds in each case by saying woman or saying man, which that means it's an engaged denial. He, he's not just trying to shuffle through his words, hoping they'll move on. But what are you saying? You know, that's not what he's doing here. He's just trying to act confused and shuffle off into the darkness, hoping nobody will notice. He's looking right at them. They're saying, you're one of them. He's saying, man, I am not one of them. You're not telling the truth right now. It, it's emphatic. You're a disciple of Jesus. No, I am not. You're a disciple of Jesus. No, I am not. You're a disciple of Jesus. No, I am not. He is denying Christ before men. And, and just to remind us, that is a grave sin. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then... Understand that it's actually even worse than Luke describes, because Luke likes to be economic with his words when it comes to how he's describing the, the uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion of Jesus. But we get more detail from Mark and Matthew. Mark 14, verse 71. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And then in Matthew 26, verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. I mean, this is climactic. It's meant to be. The third denial is the summit of Peter's sin, where he's not just denying, but he is actually taking an oath, and he is saying, I'm not one of the disciples of Christ, and if I am lying, let God bring curses down from heaven upon me. It's quite a thing to say. It's quite an oath to take. And the rooster crows in verse 60, and Jesus' prediction has fully come true. It's all played out just like he said. He has been delivered up to suffer. He's been betrayed by one of his friends, and now Peter has denied him three times before the rooster crows to signify the start of a new day. And we get this detail that is unique to Luke, where Jesus looks at Peter after the rooster crows, and Peter remembers Jesus' prediction and he leaves the courtyard and weeps in bitterness. I love this particular detail because I think it could only come from Peter. Like, Luke and Peter obviously knew each other. If you read the book of Acts, Peter, which we'll get to in a moment, he's all up in the early church, and Luke is there recording all of it. Clearly, these two men would have known each other. This is a detail that had to come right from Peter. Right? It's almost surprising you don't see it in Mark because we think Mark is actually dictated to Mark by Peter. And so it's surprising that it comes in Luke. But only Peter could be aware of this look. What was in that look? Was it a look of reproach and rebuke? Or was it a look of love urging Peter toward repentance? Urging Peter to receive forgiveness? We don't know. But I think if you consider the disposition and the attitude of Jesus towards sinners in the book of Luke, I would guess that it was a look of mercy, a look that was wooing Peter toward repentance and toward receiving forgiveness. I say that because the harshest words that Jesus has in the Gospels are for self-righteous people who are completely unwilling to admit that they would need any help from God. That's who he reserves his harsh words for. For the religious elite who would not only walk around acting that way, but would teach others that they should live their lives in such a way where they don't need anything from God, right? That is what he reserves his harshest words for. But for broken sinners who have totally messed up and fallen flat on their face, like Peter in this instance, Jesus just seems to be full of mercy for them. It's almost as if this is a look that says, Peter, I told you this was going to happen and this hurts both of us, but I love you, Peter. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to die for your denial. So come back to me. I would guess that is packed into that look, but we can't be sure. But I do think that this look represents the moment that Peter became painfully aware of what he had done. He had been dreadfully prideful. He had bragged and crowed that he was ready to go to prison with Jesus. He was ready to die for Jesus. But in the end, he wasn't even ready to say that he knew him. That he had a relationship with him. That he followed him. In the upper room, he was Arnold Palmer, glad-handing his friends on the way to the 18th tee of the 61 Masters. Surely on his way to a moment of triumphant victory. But in the courtyard, 
he's Arnold Palmer missing the 15-footer and realizing he had failed. And yet it's so much worse because that master's green jacket is an earthly treasure with no eternal value. Peter lost in the game of faithfulness to the Lord of the universe. Real stakes. And he knew it. And he's crushed here. I believe his bitter weeping is a fruit of his awareness of his failure. Kent Hughes says it this way. He said, but the knowledge of what he was in his heart was stripped of any rhetoric. Its raw meaning was there to stay with all its sanctifying potential. But the master's look did even more. It maintained the link between Peter's soul and Christ. It was a knowing look that said, Peter, it is happening just as I told you. Now remember it all because I prophesied more than your fall as the rooster crowed. Spiritual falls are a part of spiritual life, and we don't like that. We shouldn't like that. You don't want to walk around responding to the sin that's in your life by going, oh, you know, people fall. No, we should hate that spiritual falls are a part of our spiritual lives. We do not want our sin to transgress God's laws. We don't want to fail to honor him, but it happens. Think about Noah, who was so godly and who stand alone and was an incredible leader. Was obedient to the Lord. Then he gets off the ark, plants a vineyard, get drunk, gets totally drunk off its fruits and passes out naked. Think about Samson, making compromise after compromise until he's buried beneath the rubble of, you know, Philistine stone in the temple. Think about David, a man after God's own heart, who sins with Bathsheba and tries to cover it up with a murder. The Bible shows us that people, even godly people, can really, really make a mess of things. How about Psalm 119? You ever read Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible? It goes on and on, and it's 175 verses of the psalmist gushing about how great the Lord is, and in particular about how great the word of the Lord is. And it's all about how the, the word of the Lord is honey on his lips and it's a lamp for his feet and he's going to hide it in his heart that he may not sin against God and he's going on and on and it's so rich and it's wonderful for 175 verses and you get to the end of it and out of nowhere in the last verse he goes, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commandments. And you're like, what? Where did that come from? It's 175 verses of just like the most godly guy that you've ever met in your life. And then in 176, he goes, Lord, I'm out here in the woods. I haven't forgotten anything you told me, but I'm going to need you to come get me. I'm not getting home alone here. You ever been there? I, I, I wish that I was there less, but I've been there. Some, some of us have been there this week. Peter has had a spiritual fall here. He's out in the woods. And it comes on the back of his self-congratulatory pride. It comes on the back of his surety that he would never deny Jesus. That he would follow him to the prison. He'd follow him to the grave. You know what Peter was convinced of? Peter looked around that room. James, John, Bartholomew, right? He, he's going down, down, down the list of the other disciples and he's going... I'm the least likely guy in this room to deny Jesus. Never. In fact, this is basically what he says. After the upper room, they go out to the Mount of Olives, and he reiterates it. 
And when they had sung a hymn, this is Matthew 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so Peter interrupts him. He says, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I can see John falling away. I can see Bartholomew falling away. I can see the other Judas falling away. Never me. It's never going to be me. And Jesus again reiterates his prediction to him. Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter responds to that prediction and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's, he's literally arguing with, with Jesus about his prediction. That is, that is how vibrant his self-congratulatory pride is here in this moment. You're going to deny me three times. He internalizes, he takes it. Right? And then they get out to the Mount of Olives. He hears it again. You're going to deny me three times. No way. I, I will die with you if I have to, but I will never deny you. And then all the other disciples, because Peter is their leader, they jump in. Oh, yeah, yeah, us too, us too. We're not going anywhere. The spiritual arrogance from Peter made him, unfortunately, a phenomenal candidate to fall flat on his face. This is what happens when we are spiritually prideful and we attribute way too much strength to our own flesh. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's why when, when Pastor David preached on this uh, a couple of weeks ago in Luke 22, verse 46, when Jesus comes to him, he says, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He has just told all of them that Satan wants to sift them like wheat. The hour of darkness is upon them. They cannot afford to be prideful because if they are, destruction will come. They should be praying. They shouldn't be prideful. They should be praying. They should be aware of their own weakness. And at the end of the day, we've got to walk around as believers with a keen awareness of our weaknesses. I'm not saying you walk around in weakness. I'm not saying you walk around and you're just like, well, I'm just weak. I can't do anything. I'll never do anything for God. Being some sort of like Christian Eeyore, okay? I'm I'm saying. No, I'm saying that you walk around every day going, I live in the strength of the Lord, but I must live in the strength of the Lord because I'm painfully aware of the fact that if I don't, apart from him, I will do nothing good. I'll do things, but it won't be good things. I was watching uh, a game yesterday, a baseball game. I've really enjoyed the baseball playoffs these last couple of days. And uh, I was watching Bo Bichette of the Toronto Blue Jays. And if you ever watched baseball and you heard that name Bichette before, his dad, Dante, was an uh, all-star baseball player, a really good baseball player. I'm not going to say great, but he was really good. And his son's a really good ball player, too. Yesterday was not a good day for him because the Blue Jays blew an 8-1 lead and, and got knocked out of the uh, playoffs. But I was watching it, and they said his dad, as I was watching Bo, they were talking about his dad, Dante, they said he came to the park every single day And he would say to his teammates, this might be the day I can't hit in the major leagues anymore. He said it his whole career. Every day, he'd take extra batting practice. Dante, what are you taking that extra BP for? This might be the day I can't hit a curveball anymore. I got to work. And so every day, he would come in with this keen awareness that it could be the day he falters. It could be the day he fails. We have got to have the same awareness. 
We can bluster like Peter. We can think we have life under control. We can think we're beyond the sort of sins that bring shame into the lives of others. But the reality is, is we're all just a couple of decisions away from absolute spiritual ruin and disaster. And the only thing standing in between you and such moments is the mercy and the strength of Jesus that he pours into your life every single day. And what godly people realize is that's all they've got. It's the daily mercy and strength of Jesus. They're nourished by it. They live upon it. They depend upon it. They hide the scripture in their heart. They seek God in prayer. They trust in the strength of Christ, not in their own. In, in short, you could say that those who live on guard against spiritual falls humbly recognize they are in danger of denying Christ each and every day. And they are the ones who have figured out the value in fearing God. Because after all, why do we sin? Why did Adam and Eve sin in the garden? Well, if I don't eat the fruit of this tree, then I won't get to be like God. I, I won't get to have the satisfaction that's being offered to me. I've got to do it. We sin because we fear something more than God. Peter feared the accusers. He, he feared the consequences of being identified with Jesus. He feared the prospect of a brutal death at the hands of the religious authority and the Roman government. Sin comes from a lack of fear in God. If we are to avoid spiritual falls, we must not only reject our pride, but we must fear God because this is where wisdom starts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fearing God above everything else will keep us from cowering in the face of any temptation that seeks to drag us away from intimacy with the Lord. Because when we fear him, we recognize he's powerful enough to give us the victory in temptation, that he's more powerful than anything on this earth. And we also realize his opinion is the only one that actually matters because nobody else can condemn us but him. But Peter's spiritual pride and his fear of man has converged here, and the result is an ugly sin of denial. Now, one of the great things about Peter is that his story in the Bible doesn't end here. And so I'm going to fast forward to John 21. Jesus has been crucified, Jesus has been resurrected. Now, the resurrected Lord of the universe is sitting on the shore, eating some breakfast with his disciples. And John 21 says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So there's one exchange, okay? He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. There's a second exchange. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you, uh, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. A third exchange. The three denials are answered by three confirmations of love. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And all three times, Peter says yes, and all three times, Jesus answers back to this command where he says to Peter, feed and tend my sheep. So what's the call? It's a call to do this, what I'm doing right now. It's a call to pastoral ministry. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. Go pastor my people. Go govern my church. Go teach my church. Go lead my church. Go feed my church. Go care for my church. And what happens after that? Well, Peter becomes one of the most prominent leaders of the early church, one of the most important pastors of the early church. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles. Who's the first one to stand up and preach a spirit-empowered sermon in the middle of Jerusalem? Just, just days and days after, right? right? Just, just, just a, a flip of the calendar after his Lord has been arrested and, and crucified there. So all that fear of man, it, 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 the opportunity's still there. It's still there for Peter to give in to that, but he stands up. And he is the one to preach and to lead 3,000 men and their families to the Lord. And Acts 4, there's another opportunity for that fear of man to take over and for Peter to tuck his tail and deny Christ like he did in that courtyard and to run away, but it doesn't happen. Peter and John are threatened that they must stop preaching, they must stop healing in the name of Christ. And here's the response. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So let you decide whether or not your opinion is more important than God's. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We've made our minds up about whose opinion we think is most important, and we have seen and heard the Lord act, and so we're going to keep talking about that. But you guys go ahead and keep deliberating and figure out whose opinion you think is most important. That's quite a change from woman, I do not know him. Man, I do not know him. In Acts 10, Peter takes the gospel to a Gentile uh, family led by name, uh, a man named Cornelius, and he leads him and his whole family to Jesus. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, meaning Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. You see the pur uh, purpose of the gift of tongues in this passage, right? The, the gift of tongues existed in the early church so that when the Holy Spirit worked in Cornelius and his family's life and they start speaking in the same tongues from Acts 2, then all of those Jewish Christians are there going, hey, it's the same thing that happened to us when we received the Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit. God's saving Gentile people here. And Peter's like, yeah, anybody want to withhold water? No, let's baptize them. Many Jewish Christians were not comfortable. They were not amazed. They were angry with the idea that Gentiles like Cornelius would come to faith. They're like, hey, they got to get circumcised first, and they got to follow the dietary laws first before we start baptizing people. And then there were other people going, no, 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 no. It's not Jesus plus circumcision and dietary laws equals salvation. It's Jesus equals salvation, period. 
So we're not adding any works to this. All they need to do is repent and believe in Jesus and they can be baptized. So they have a big, big business meeting about it in Acts 15 where the two sides get there and they pony up and they're ready to go at it. And after there had been much debate, who stands up? Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And I love this from Peter. All right, This is a pastor protecting the gospel and protecting the new believers in his flock. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We didn't keep the law. That's why Jesus had to die for us. Why are you trying to make them keep the law that we can never keep? Just let them believe in Jesus. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. What a man he is. What a pastor, what a leader, what a godly individual the grace of God has made out of Peter. Now, is he a perfect man? Absolutely not. In Galatians, Paul says that Peter would act one way when legalistic Jews from Jerusalem are around. So when those very people that he stood up to in Acts 15 were coming around, Peter would kind of change his behavior. Eat different, talk different, act different, right? But then when those people would go away, he's in there buddying up with all the Gentiles, you know, eating bacon like everybody else. And that's a problem because that means that he's living hypocritically and his life is not in line with the gospel. So Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So in front of everybody, he says to him, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're eating bacon all the time. Why are you trying to make these people not eat bacon? It seems like some of that old fear of man was slipping in on Peter again. And that happened. Even when we are restored and we recover from our big spiritual failures, we're going to have to fight sin and we're going to have bad days. But you can read Peter's first letter in the New Testament and see that while he had his bad days, his heart had been changed. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter wasn't a perfect man. But because he was submitting to the fear of God in his life, he was chasing that perfection. He wasn't without sin, but he was striving for a sinless life. And then if we go back to that John 21 conversation with Jesus and Peter as Jesus is restoring him and calling him to pastoral ministry, we get a clue to how Peter's life will end. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself 
and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I gave my life to full-time Christian ministry on July 15, 1999. If on that night you had said to me, and by committing to this full-time Christian ministry, your life will end with you being bound and not going where you want to go and not wearing what you want to wear and you're going to die for this. I don't know what my reaction to that is, you know what I mean? I was a teenager for one thing, but I don't know what my reaction to that is. Here's Peter getting called to pastoral ministry by Jesus and Jesus saying to him, and Peter, this pastoral ministry will cost you your life. The very thing Peter sought to preserve, preserve as he denied Jesus. He's gonna be put in chains for preaching. And what church history tells us is that the man who denied Christ in the courtyard did not deny him in the end. In Fox Voices of the Martyrs, it says Peter's final days in Rome are not described in the scriptures, but various traditional accounts have survived. Reportedly, he spent horrific months in the, inf the infamous Mamertine prison, a place where incarceration was often a, uh, itself a death sentence. Though manacled and mistreated, Peter survived the tortures and apparently communicated the gospel effectively to his guards. Eventually, he was hauled out of the dungeon, taken to Nero's circus, and there crucified upside down because he did not consider himself to be worthy to be crucified head upward like Christ. I would say the fruit of sanctification was pretty evident in Peter's life. Satan probably thought that Peter's denial in that courtyard that night would be the end of his effectiveness for the kingdom, but it was just the opposite. Because, you know, so often Jesus will take our biggest failures and he will use them as a springboard to a sanctified life where we are the exact opposite person of who we were when we fell from him. And that's what he did with Peter. You can look at the life of Peter and just see the grace that Jesus poured out on him in that post-breakfast restoration in John 21. You can see that that grace transformed him from the inside out. This is a different man. It's a different man from the courtyard to an upside-down crucifixion. And in the end, what happened is Peter denied his denial. He turned from his turning. And we have to do the same thing. When we fail, when we deny Christ with our words and with our actions, by the things we do and the things we leave undone that we should have done, we have to confess our sin and we repent. Knowing Jesus was punished for our sin in our place and we must receive the grace of Christ and then live transformed lives where we are constantly seeking to deny our denial. To replace our sin with godly sacrifice. To replace our idolatry with spirit and truth worship. And the bold obedience that flows out from our lives will be the evidence that Christ has never given up on us. In fact, just the opposite, he's hands on. He is like a potter molding the clay of our lives, making us into his image. Peter's unrecognizable by the end of his life. I gotta imagine that if you knew Peter when he was 22 and you never saw him again, and then you meet Peter as an old man, you would go, who is this guy? 
What, what happened to that loudmouthed, arrogant fisherman that I knew? The man that looked like Adam in the garden. He's gone. And now we have this man who looks like Christ, who suffered and died like Christ, and then went to glory where the transformation was complete. But listen to me, none of that happens if Peter responds to his fall poorly. I'm going to ask the band to come back up right now, and as they do, I know that this is the time where we're tempted to shuffle papers and put our Bibles away, but I want you to, to listen as they're walking back up. The chances that we have brothers and sisters in this room this morning who are struggling with sin, people who this week fell flat on their face and feel that they are now beyond the grace of God, I would say those chances are pretty high. Just because of life, you get this many people in a room, I, I imagine that we could think of some days this week where we just thought, man, I just struck out. I got up in the morning, I read my Bible, I prayed, I had every intention of honoring God with my life today, and just time and time again, I made decisions that are not Christ-honoring. And maybe, like Peter, there was a moment this week where you went and you sat down and you wept bitterly. Maybe this morning you, you feel like, I, I just give up, all in vain I have kept my hands clean. I, I can't do this. And what I want to say to you this morning is Christ has not given up. You have denied him. He stands ready to forgive, to look at you and say, do you love me? To restore you, to call you to wonderful, maybe hard, but wonderful things for his kingdom. And so what I want to say to you this morning is deny your denial. Turn your back on your turning. Turn your back on sin. Turn to God and ask him for forgiveness on the basis of the death of his son, Jesus Christ. For some of you in this room, maybe you've never done that before. You've never just like gotten down on your knees before God and started listing out your sins one by one and confessing them all to him and asking him to forgive you and then realizing, well, he can't forgive me and be just unless that sin is paid for and then realizing, oh, his son paid for it, his son died for it, and then saying to him, I trust that you can forgive me because I trust in the death of your son Jesus. If you've never repented of your sin and put your trust in Christ and asked him for salvation, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to do that. But I also want to say to believers that are in the room who are teetering, who feel like the pressures of this world are too much, who, who feel like your failures are stacking up, who feel like there's no way God can have enough second chances in his bag for me, I want to say to you, he does. That he has grace on top of grace on top of grace. But he does not want from you a life where you put your arm around your sin and, and you say, well, hey, God, this is me and this is my sin. I want you to love me, but I'm going to keep on with my sin. He wants you to stop. He wants you to deny your denial. To say, I agree with you, God, about my sin and I want it out of my life. 
That is real godly repentance. And so I call on you as believers this morning to put your sin away, to crucify the flesh. And as you do it, to recognize that the grace of God is ready to be poured out on you by the beloved son. And so, like Peter, recognize your sin for what it is. Weep bitterly over your sin. It's good. But those tears should lead you to a place of true repentance. To receive the grace of God, for that grace to transform you from the inside out. And the very thing that you're failing at this week, the very thing that you're stumbling on, the very thing you can't seem to get past, he will give you victory over it. And then he will take that very failure and use it as a springboard to all sorts of spiritual faithfulness as he did with Peter in this passage. But you have to deny your denying. You have to repent and receive the grace of God. So do it this morning. Don't let Satan fool you into thinking that because you have slipped and you have fallen down a few rungs on the ladder, you should just get off and give up completely. Recognize the fact that the Lord is just as strong today and he will forgive you and that his love overcomes the power of sin and that is proven in the death and the resurrection of his son. Trust in Jesus for your forgiveness just as you did on the day of your salvation. Be restored. Let's pray. Father, it's a joy to be able to stand here and so confidently be able to say that you will be gracious to sinners because your word tells us time and time again that's who you are. And Lord, uh, this morning, wherever the people in this room are at in their hearts, Lord, you know them, you know what's gone on this week, you know them even better than they know themselves. And so, Father, I pray that you would be convicting in the heart and that you would be wooing sinners toward you. And that their, their affections would no longer be for sin, that they would deny their denial, that they would turn their back on sin, they would turn to you. And their affections, like Peter's, would be for you. And that that would play out in their lives. As, as their lives of, of, of obedience are seen by all. And Lord, I pray that for all of us, Someone was to meet us, if you give us the years when our hair is gray, and they had known us decades ago, before your grace really got a hold of us, I pray that they would look at us and say, I don't even recognize you. I don't even know you. Lord, I pray your grace would alter us to that level. That it would be really clear, a distinction between the old man and the new man. Help us to walk in the newness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.